All right, we want to welcome you back here to uh, Grace Church of Mentor. I want to thank you for uh, tuning in here tonight. Uh, I know it's been a uh, probably a busy day for many of you, and I uh, just want to say uh, what an honor it is to have you here uh, viewing the live stream as we continue our study in uh, the Gospel of Luke. Um, and obviously there's lots of good reasons for the study. Hopefully you've been instructed from uh, several different pastors with respect to our book here. Uh, and uh, it's just been good to hear from Pastor Hobbes, Pastor Mike, Pastor Steve. And now this month you'll be hearing from me, I think, a few times with respect to the Gospel of Luke. So with that in mind, we're going to open up with a word of prayer here tonight, and we're continuing to pray for uh, Jim Sabo and Sandy Coakley. Uh, we know that Jim has been bedridden now, I guess, for quite a while, six months or so, as they try to figure out uh, just his knees. And uh, so we really need to keep Jim Sabo in our prayers, and uh, also Sandy Coakley as she continues to work through chemotherapy uh, with respect to her cancer. And for Jim, just for grace and, and comfort in their lives as they walk in this valley in shadow. So I'm going to go ahead and open a word of prayer, and then we'll uh, get right into what the Lord has for us in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, and we'll be looking at verses 15 through 30 together tonight. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. Lord, we uh, thank you for another day of worship, a time to celebrate uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and for the amazing hope that we have. And uh, we thank you that last week we had such a wonderful, rich, rich time of worship together. We thank you for those who were baptized. We pray for Andrea. We pray, Lord, for Julia. Pray for Maddie, Lord, as they continue on in their walk with Christ. We know that uh, as they step out publicly now uh, in confession of their faith, Lord, they certainly are, are they're, they're, they're a target uh, for uh, forces that are evil and, and would love to see them stumble and discouraged and despondent. And I pray that you would use the church as we gather around them together to encourage them, to see them strengthened in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and prayer and breaking of the bread. So I pray that we would uh, just love them as dear sisters in Christ and uh, look forward to seeing what you'll continue to do in their lives and just thank you and praise you for them. We thank you, Lord, for Jim and Sandy and their families, uh, for uh, Jim Sabo and, and uh, his dear wife and family and Jim Coakley and Sandy together. We pray, Lord, as they walk in the valley in the shadow, that you would strengthen and encourage them, that they would fear no evil, that they would be confident of your ever-abiding presence, Lord Jesus. And uh, may your word give them that confidence, and may the Holy Spirit witness to the word, and, and may they know that. In, in a very profound, objective way. And I pray that you would heal these bodies. We pray that you would restore these folks back to a, a time and a place where they can uh, serve and be with us here at Grace Church. So, Lord, encourage them in, a, in, in only the way you can, and we thank you for that. We pray now as we look to your word tonight, we ask, Father, that you would uh, help us to grasp what is so critical here uh, together and to see its significance and to be instructed. And we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Hopefully you have your Bibles now open to Luke chapter 18, verses, or chapter 18, yes, verses 15 to 30. I'm going to read those. 
and uh, then we'll get moving to see how the Lord really Luke through uh, recording what Jesus uh, interacted with or dealt with uh, that through that we will be well instructed uh, tonight so let's read here beginning at verse 15 and they were bringing even their babies to him that's Jesus so that he would touch them but when the disciples saw it they began to rebuke them but Jesus called for them saying permit children the children to come to me And do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. A ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness and honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Peter said, behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. You know, polling data has shown that 65% of all Christians say that many faiths can lead to eternal life. The poll goes on to clarify that the vast majority of that 60%, in fact, 80% of that 65%, cite an example of at least one non-Christian religion that can lead to salvation. And fully... 61% or 6 in 10 of those named two or more non-Christian religions can lead to eternal life. You know, Luke's heart for Theophilus could not be more relevant when he writes in Luke chapter 1, and I quote from there, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. 
You know, to know the exact truth, you must not only know what the truth is, but you also must know what the truth is not. Eternity is in the balance. Jesus' motive, love for the world, is unlimited, we would argue. His message of eternal life or to secure eternal life is exclusive. His motive is unlimited. His message is exclusive of all other messages of how it is we can find ourselves in the kingdom of heaven in this life and in the life to come. As a disciple makers and as disciples of Jesus ourselves, it is imperative that we understand the true nature of saving faith, that we know what it is and we can help our disciples know what it is not. And we also want to remember that the faith that saves us is the faith that sanctifies us. So the qualities of faith we exercise at the beginning of our spiritual journey are the very same qualities that we'll enjoy over time and they will mature and be, fa- and, and be in fact more profoundly impactful on our lives. Luke records Jesus' demand for exact truth when it came to securing entrance into the kingdom of heaven. He addresses several inexact truths, inexact truths concerning eternal life in his day that are equally true in our own in our passage here tonight. Ironically, Jesus had to debate the crux of saving faith, and the crux was not a matter of dealing with complicated nuances. The crux was trying to maintain the pure simplicity of saving faith. It is the habit of the human heart to lay layer upon layer upon layer of religious duty when it comes to our saving faith. Jesus seems to spend his ministry peeling back those layers and moving his disciples back to the simplicity of true saving faith. And we see that here tonight. Mankind always seeks to complicate the entrance into the kingdom of heaven. So what are these inexact truths? We're going to look at four of the inexact truths that Jesus is dealing with. The first inexact truth we find in verses 15 to 17. And the inexact truth is this, that any kind of faith secures the kingdom of God. Any kind of faith. Jesus answers with the more exact truth that you must receive the kingdom of God the way a child receives things. Let me say that again. Jesus replies or corrects this inexact truth with the correct truth that you must receive the kingdom of God the way a child receives things. You know, the context here is is clear from our reading. These are babies, little ones being brought to Jesus in order that Jesus would touch them. Other gospel writers uh, sort of unpack this idea of touching, uh, uh, that parents were bringing their children so that Jesus would pray a blessing over these children. 
you know, we, we do sort of the same kind of thing. Our pastor sort of replicates Jesus' example here when he has our young couple stand up who have recently had a, a little baby, and he holds the baby, he touches that little baby, and he prays over that baby a blessing. Uh, Unsurprisingly, though, we would understand for these disciples in the context which they are in, uh, they, they rebuke such an attempt. And their thinking was, we have a very important teacher here, and he doesn't have the time to deal with these children and, and to just kind of stop his schedule and, and proclaim simple blessings over these little children. And... And Jesus is going to, uh, not so much, uh, he's certainly going to rebuke the disciples for uh, perhaps their, their view on children, although that's not really at the heart of the matter here. What Jesus is going to do is he's going to take this opportunity to use children to teach the disciples about what the nature of true saving faith looks like. What does this interchange between Jesus and the disciples with respect to these children, what does it mean? Well, whatever it means, it is particularly critical. And we don't want to miss this in the text. It is so very critical for to fail to understand this issue. Whatever Jesus is trying to teach about children with respect to saving faith to his disciples... Whatever he's teaching here, it's particularly critical for to, under, to fail to understand it, places one into a category of never, according to our text, never being able to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. I mean, that's profound. Um, you know, it, 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 to some degree, it's nice to know when something is never or something is always. Now, there are very few things in life that fall into those categories, is there? But boy, when one does, it's nice to sort of grab it and, and to be able to live by it and then enjoy the protection that it has to offer. Um, maybe you can think of some illustrations of things that it is never good to do or it is always right to do, and those are very helpful. Well, here's one of those never things, and it's specifically in relationship to saving faith. So to fail to understand this puts us in that never category, so we want to work hard at trying to understand what exactly Jesus is doing here. So Jesus tells us who the kingdom of heaven does not belong to. It does not belong to those who do not receive the kingdom as a child receives things. And that's really critical. And who does it belong to, the kingdom of heaven? It belongs to those who do receive the kingdom as a child receives them. So the point of comparison Jesus is seeking to make is this point of receiving. There is something true about how a child receives things that is not true of how an adult would, see, would, would tend to receive things. So let's try to unpack that a little further. Well, what is that? What is that? Well, here I would suggest this is the point of comparison. Children absolutely have absolutely nothing to give up or to give back when something is given to them. All they can possibly do is just simply receive. That's their only option. 
As a result, a child often receives things with wonder and amazement. They absolutely know that unless it is given, they have no chance or hope of ever receiving anything. Paul sort of further extrapolates this truth in Ephesians chapter 2, 8, and 9. He, he certainly changes the metaphor. Not that this is a metaphor necessarily here in, Matthew, or in Luke chapter 18, but he, he uses a metaphor to sort of explain the same idea. He says, and you were dead in trespasses and sin. Jesus uses a child here to help us understand that children have nothing to give. Their only option is to receive. And in true saving faith, that is absolutely true of each one of us. It's about saving faith. It's about dealing with the leading indicator of true saving faith. We could use that verbiage. It's the tip of the spear of what true saving faith is characterized by. And it is this, an absolute personal bankruptcy coupled with resulting wonder amazement for having received anything at all. True saving faith begins this way, and it is the controlling disposition of every true believer as they grow and mature in the Lord. It yields the disposition of a learner, a humble learner, a lover, and a worshiper. So let me ask you a couple questions as a result of our first point here. Is there still a sense of wonder and amazement when you look back on the day you received the gift of faith and repentance? Ephesians 2 tells us it was a gift. Children realize that they have absolutely nothing. The irony is they do not even necessarily think that they have absolutely nothing. It's just a settled fact and understanding of their whole existence. It should be the settled fact of our whole existence as Adults, when we receive or grow in our faith, that, boy, we really have nothing to offer, that this is all of Jesus and none of us. We need to humbly sit in the seat of the learner and to receive what we cannot earn ourselves. Was it your conviction the day you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior that you were a helpless receiver? You know, children can't even say, oh, oh wait a minute, let, let me give you something in return for that. No, they have nothing to give. You know, they, they, they can't even argue like, like some adults, oh, you shouldn't have. You know, and you, typically that comes out, adults tend to say that, because they know that in reality, that they could kind of provide this for themselves, and you really don't need to provide this for them. Uh, don't worry about them. So, so, but these are realities that no children have or experience. And it is true that these are uh, 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 realities that no man or woman has when it comes to the question of entrance into the kingdom. There is nothing we can give to enter the kingdom of heaven. So the second inexact truth that Luke addresses through Jesus's message, we find in verses 18 through 29. And here he's dealing with a rich young ruler and, and the inexact truth is this, is that wealth eases entrance into the kingdom of God. That wealth somehow is an ally when it comes to entering the kingdom of God. The exact truth, however, that Jesus expounds upon is that wealth makes kingdom entrance impossible. Impossible. 
Well, you say, Pastor, how do you, how do you derive that? Well, let's look at, sort of talk through the passage together. Wealth not only fails to ease the entrance into the kingdom, it in fact supports the number one insurmountable obstacle for entrance into the kingdom. What is that number one insurmountable obstacle that wealth supports? And that is this, self-reliance. It is sort of the same theme with a different variation on what Jesus just dealt with the disciples with respect to the children. It's the same theme with a little bit of a different variation. Wealth makes kingdom entrance impossible. How does it do that? It, 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 it encourages self-reliance. If you're going to make it into the kingdom, you cannot be self-reliant. You must be Christ-reliant. Well, how does wealth promote self-reliance? Well, the self-reliance that wealth promotes, according to our text, is that it naturally miscommunicate or miscalculates Jesus' authority. Uh, the rich young ruler doesn't worship Jesus. He simply proclaims him to be a good teacher. Uh, there's, Jesus tries to address the matter through the word good. Uh, asserting his authority as God, but obviously uh, the rich young ruler completely misses that, uh, energized by his wealth. Uh, so so, so it, it promotes that self-reliance. Uh, another thing that wealth does, uh, the self-reliance that wealth promotes naturally miscalculates individual ability. Wealth tends to make an individual think they have something to contribute. Well, in fact, uh, the reality is, uh, well, our, our rich young ruler said, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He completely missed it. He felt like he had resources that he could, he could exercise to secure eternal life. A third thing that, that wealth does to promote self-reliance is it naturally miscalculates the real lack. He had done all of these commandments most probably from an outward appearance. This is how the law was viewed back then, natural to you know, Paul himself. He talks about that in, in, uh, in his assessment by all accounts. He, from an outward appearance of the law, he was, he was uh, unassailable. Uh, we remember his testimony, but then he says, I count that all but dung for the surpassing value of knowing Christ. And it is that idea that this rich young ruler missed. Uh, wealth, wealth uh, promoted uh, uh, an inability to really understand his lack. His lack. Jesus says, one thing you still lack. There's still a real lacking, regardless of how wealthy you are, rich young ruler. The fourth thing that wealth promotes in terms of self-reliance, it naturally overplays the value and significance of wealth. Wealth has inherent in its uh, 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 powers and positions, sort of this, the seeds of, of this, this value significance matter. That wealth buys significance. Um, note that the placement of the rich young ruler's affections, he was very sad, very sad. The text doesn't just say he was sad. Luke reports that he was very sad. Because he had way overplayed uh, the value of wealth with respect to its significance in this life. This life lasts for a mere short 70 years. Jesus knew this. 
eternity by comparison uh, was no comparison at all. Wealth is a temporal matter. Jesus was talking about eternity. So by way of application, uh, sort of uh, this whole idea of wealth, does your wealth support certain spiritual self-reliance in your life? You know, it could be argued that all of us are wealthy in a way that historically the world has not ever known. And uh, we certainly, there are those who are more wealthy than the rest of us and perhaps are, are more prone to the inherent lies that wealth brings when it comes to the development and growth and question of true saving faith. Uh, uh, but, but the reality is we all have a level of wealth and we all have to uh, very proactively conscientiously understand that with the blessing of wealth comes some inherent uh, 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 enemies, if you will, to our own growth in grace and faith. Um, perhaps you find yourself, you're not so quick to entrust yourself to God's word. His church what we would argue to be normal, Bible-defined living. Perhaps your wealth sort of gives you the ability not to have to entrust yourself. You know, you can kind of live aloof a little bit. You, you have the resources, and wealth kind of argues that, ah, oh, you don't have to go to church as much. You don't, you don't have to be that uh, invested in the local church. You're, you're, you're fine without it. You, you, you have a level of comfort and ease and assurance that flows out of your wealth. And, and, and Jesus here is, is, is rebuking that. You know, in the book of Acts, um, the Holy Spirit makes it clear that there is just a normal entrusting of our lives to a church family. Uh, the Apostles' Doctrine, Fellowship, Breaking of Bread, and Prayer. And there's no amount of wealth uh, that can speed us on in the questions of Bible-defined assurance. It requires not wealth, but an entrustment of our life. Um, Jesus warns emphatically of the danger of allowing wealth to creep into our spiritual thought process. God did not give you or me wealth with the hopes of creating a certain level of spiritual self-reliance. That is not God's intention for giving you wealth. God wants you and me, regardless of how wealthy you find yourself, to be spiritually dependent on the normal means of assurance that God has given us in the local church today. We must gather together. We must fellowship together. We must learn together. And we must share each other's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, the book of Galatians tells us. A third uh, inexact truth in verses 24 to 30 that Luke addresses through the words of Jesus is this. Man can save himself and move himself toward God. The exact truth is this, that all men, even those who appear to be very blessed by God financially, need a miracle to transform the impossible in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, this is the retort of those disciples who began to understand that it's harder for uh, a man who is wealthy to 
uh, it's harder for him to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. Those who heard that threw up their arms and said, well, then who can ever enter? Who can ever enter? This is an argument from the, those disciples' minds, from the major to minor. The, the logic here is uh, this. Uh, their thinking was that all wealthy people are blessed of God and firmly in the kingdom. So if wealthy people can't get in, then we certainly can't. And Jesus rescues them from their theological misunderstanding by assuring them that what is impossible for man is in fact possible with God. God is just that powerful. So this rich man ruler had hope. These disciples had hope regardless of their financial um, realities. So both the childlike and the wealthy need a divine miracle of the impossible in order to be saved. Thankfully, this is God's work. Are you convinced that this is your condition? Without the help of God, you have no hope of salvation? Perhaps even more importantly, knowing you were convinced of this truth when you were born again, are you equally, if not more convinced of this truth after years of being in the Lord? It is true that saving faith is sanctifying faith. We've mentioned that already. What we, what we mean is that all the requisite characteristics and qualities of saving faith that exist in seed form when we're born again blossom in full understanding and conviction the longer you are in Christ. The mantra of the mature Christian is what we find in John chapter 15 when Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can't do anything. And folks, regardless of your financial portfolio, that is the eternal reality. And that must be the conviction of your soul. And that conviction, to me, you rush to the means of assurance that God has provided in the local New Testament church to be aloof and to remain away because somehow you enjoy a level of comfortability. Please know that that is not Jesus' understanding of the purpose for him giving you what you enjoy. It was never to promote self-reliance. It was so that you can give to God's people and encourage the normal means of assurance in this church. The fourth and final inexact truth is this. For those who possess eternal life, time and eternity is merely a quid pro quo. Uh, we sacrifice something and Jesus gives us sort of the, the exact equivalent of that back. That's an inexact truth. The exact truth that Jesus retorts with is this, the relational capital, that's what specifically he's dealing with here, the relational capital that's expensed by you to enter the kingdom of heaven will be overwhelmingly restored in this life. You say, well, where is that found? It's found here in this local New Testament church and in the age to come the millennium and the eternal state. So the relational capital that you expended when you came to know Jesus Christ is going to be overwhelmingly restored, not just in a mere quid pro quo. You know, Peter is very concerned, and so should we be about this matter. He uses the word behold. Uh, Peter needed assurance. We need assurance because we know how expensive relational capital can be in our life 
and how difficult it can be. The costliest price to be paid when we exercise true saving faith is often paid in relational capital. Nothing costs more or hurts more deeply than this expense. When you came to Christ, many of you know what that feels like. You were alienated by family and friends, loved ones. Coming to Jesus for you severely severed formerly close relationships and probably more than you care to count. You have not done so by your own personal insistence, we hope, but your life is now a sermon in shoes, as the child song goes, that, that is no longer welcomed. Jesus gives amazing inducement not to fear man. Jesus uniformly and summarily reassures that no life that gives up rich relational capital, and he knows it's rich, he knows it's hard, he went through it himself. That those of you who give that up, you will have a rich, rich reinstatement with interest of those relational realities here in the local church as you get yourself involved in disciple making and a part of our family here as well as in all eternity. So our conclusion then tonight is, is a very simple one. And it's very important for Luke knows that from the mind of Jesus the issue is eternity. Eternity is in the balance. Don't succumb to the idea that any kind of faith secures the kingdom of God. No. You must receive the kingdom of God the way a child receives things. With an absolute understanding of your bankruptcy. That you have nothing to give. We, wanna, we, we don't want to succumb to the idea that somehow wealth eases either my entrance into the kingdom or it can ease my spiritual disciplines. I, I don't have to be as disciplined as those other people who, who are going through hard times because they don't have the financial wherewithal that I have. and uh, So they, I can see they really need the church, whereas I don't need it so much. No, don't, don't fall to that lie. The exact truth is that wealth makes kingdom entrance impossible. With wealth comes inherent enemies to true saving faith. The promotion of self-reliance, where Jesus wants you to be Christ, uh, him reliant, Jesus reliant. So be careful. Know that you can do nothing to move yourself on your own in God's direction. The exact truth, all men, even those who appear to be very blessed by God financially, need a miracle you needed that miracle when you came to Christ and you need that kind of level of dependence as you discipline yourself to the assurances of the word of God with respect to saving faith. And then finally, be assured, dear believer, those of you who, who have expended such high relational capital to come to Jesus Christ, know that in this church there is rich fellowship to be had. Um, eternity will be filled with, with, with a kind of fellowship that transcends even family fellowship. And we can enjoy that in this church even today. So the question of entrance into the kingdom is everything. And it's worthy of exacting attention. Jesus knows this. 
He was trying to help his disciples understand it. He was help, trying to help the rich young ruler understand it. And I trust now we know it as well in, in, a, in a refreshed way. You know, it really is the only thing in time that directs eternity. What I mean by that is true saving faith. Nothing in this life will be carried over into eternity except this question of true saving faith. That's why Jesus harps on this time and time again. He knows what eternity looks like. He knows how long it is. Humanity seems to be uh, joyously ignorant <laughs> of that. And, and uh, you know, walks on the razor edge of eternity without ever giving it a second thought. Jesus knows it. And that's why he's so concerned that we get the exact truth so that we can enjoy eternity with him forever. You know, ironically, what must be shed are usually the layers of overcomplication, you know, rather than oversimplification. Maintain your childlike disposition of receiving Jesus. Remember, wealth is a real obstacle to your faith due to some of its inherent lies and its promotion of your own self-reliance. Never forget that your salvation was impossible, that it required a divine miracle, something that would break into uh, normal human experience, and you were literally grabbed by God and saved by him. It required that miracle, the miracle of the person of Jesus, to appease the wrath of God and to make salvation possible. And be encouraged, dear friend, that the relational capital that you expend will be paid uh, to, to embrace saving faith and to continue to embrace saving faith in your life as a believer will be paid back with stunning and amazing interest. May God bless you and may you be encouraged tonight as we think along the lines of this important question of our eternal destiny and how it is that we can know for sure that we are uh, on Jesus' team that we can answer accurately, not so much the question, do I know Jesus, but does Jesus know me? We've heard four of those terms this morning. And may God richly bless you as you meditate on these. And may he grow us all up in grace, unmerited favor, and a knowledge of not ourselves, but of the Lord Jesus. God bless you and good night.